Hey, this is Lisa Lee, and you are listening to the Legacy Code Podcast, a show about upgrading the tech industry by making it more diverse. And today we are talking about, well, diversity in tech, and we have somebody who is really, really special on our inaugural episode. We have Nicole Sanchez in the room. Thanks, Lisa. Ah, God. So many things to say about you.、Um, let's see. Well, first of all, let me just say how appreciative I am、uh, of, of you being here, sharing this moment with me.、Um, I am such a fan of your work.、Uh, you are a huge inspiration. Oh, Lisa. <laughs> Stop. We can spend the whole 10 minutes on this love fest. Well, I think you know, it's, I feel the same way. We're doing the work in our parts of the sector, and when we get together, it just feels really good to. Talk about what we're learning. Yeah. How things are changing. Yeah, absolutely. And、uh, I'm not going to you know, say too much about you because I want you to have the honor to, to introduce yourself. But、um, I will say that Nicole Sanchez here is、uh, OG tech diversifier. <laughs>、um, and I would love、uh, for you to, to say a little bit about what that means sure, for you. Sure, sure. Well,、um, it's so perfect. Thanks. By the way. Thank you. I, I recently decided that I was going to own that moniker because I kept having to tell people that I've actually been working on diversity in tech for longer than I think most folks know this has been a conversation. My first job diversifying a tech company was in 1999. And、uh, it was about five years after I graduated from college. And I was at a startup、uh, back in Boston. And my job was to make the company be the most diverse. Uh, in terms across all lines race, gender, age, parental status,、uh, physical abilities I mean, you name it. And the CEO and founder was really into it. And he was an HBS guy,、um, you know, kind of the, 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 in some ways, the stereotypical startup founder. But the exciting thing was that he was really into this. And he came, we had met through a mutual friend, and he knew that I had been already working on diversity issues、um, in the public sector. And came and asked me if I would work in a startup. And、uh, I said yes. And it went great for a while. <laughs> Do you want to pause yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. Dramatic, pra- dramatic well, pause. Well,、okay. for those of you who are listening,、um, uh, HBS means Harvard oh, Business School. Oh, sorry, Harvard Business School. Harvard Business School. I shouldn't have done that. It's very obnoxious. <laughs> I did not go there. <laughs> neither, n- neither did I.、Um, So, obviously, that led you to then, I think,、um, the k e y b o a r d Center、mm. then led you to, to GitHub where you are today. Yeah,、right? well, well one important inflection moment is that you know, we had great success diversifying that company until we started taking investments and until we started to feel pressure from、uh, people outside of the company that. Said, what are you doing? Why do you have a person on staff who does this? Why is this so important to you? And our CEO, as well intentioned as he was, hadn't metabolized it to the level that he really needed to and succumbed to the pressure, and it was thrown out the window pretty quickly. When I came back from, an,、uh, from maternity leave,、uh, I was、uh, fired、mm-hmm. um, and told that my priorities were not in line with that of the company and that now I was a mom and I needed to. Uh, 
focus on that, and I couldn't possibly work at a startup anymore. And what? It, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think it's hard for people to know, to, to think 16 years ago, the startup ecosystem was much different than it is now, that people were still questioning whether there was money to be made, whether or not, quote-unquote, internet companies were viable, what's the monetization model, like, really in its infancy. And uh, once that pressure was applied to the argument around diversifying a company, it was easy to throw it out with a whole bunch of other initiatives. And I left tech for a while and just said, you know what, I I don't think this is a sector that's going to be able to to do this. Um, But I just kept coming back (laughs) little bits. I just kept, you know, dabbling here, dabbling there with my geeky self. Um, Until then, yeah, in 2010, I went and worked here here in Oakland, where we are right now, uh, at, at the K4 Center for Social Impact. And did that for several years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, taking this even, you know, further back than that, do mm-hmm. you remember a pivotal moment in your life where you were like, I'm going to be, you know, <laughs> the, the OG diversifier? <laughs> no. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and it, <laughs> yes. some of us don't have that moment. I think no, it's just I, like who we are. It's our identity. But I'm just kind of curious. Well, I call myself a people geek also because yeah. I think that we need lots of different kinds of geeks in the tech sector and that engineering is a really important thing. Um, but I also fall into some of those stereotypically geeky things, like I'm a Star Wars nerd and, you know, science fiction nerd and a gadget nerd. And, you know, I really embrace my geekiness, but what I studied in school and what I love is figuring out how people behave, why they make the choices they do, um, how they behave in groups and teams, how they behave as a company. And so that I, I have always found fascinating. I didn't realize that that didn't naturally come to everybody. Um, and so in learning that I had a, a talent that could be brought to bear on tech itself without writing code was revelatory for me. But I would say earliest uh, was mostly about working, uh, growing up in a very white working class neighborhood where we were one of the only um, Mexican families here in the Bay Area, believe it or not. And uh, really being faced with some of the the ways that racism manifests itself, not as we learn about it in books, like at lunch counters, but more about the the subtler stuff that happens in the classroom, that happens on the you know on the on a sports field, that happens in media, right? Absorbing a bunch of that and realizing, wait a minute, I'm not reflected in anything around me other than in my own home, and and wondering how we could fix that because it felt wrong. Yeah. It's what I call kind of death by a thousand paper cuts. Yeah, It's it's ongoing. Um, You recently wrote a piece on Medium um, about your dad, Mm -hmm. who sounds like a very (laughs) wonderful man. He was. Um, And in reading this piece, I could immediately, you know, understand why it is that you do the work that you do Mm -hmm. today. Um, so, you know, there, there wasn't necessarily like, I think a a pivotal changing moment for you. Right. But it's, it's what you've been living with. So tell me, tell me a little bit about him. (laughs) Well, um, so this is a piece on medium called diversity in tech and what we've already lost. And my parents are from East LA and my dad, uh, is the youngest of 11 children. And in 1962, he was able to uh, fulfill his dream of going to UC Berkeley. He was accepted. And I talk about this a little bit in the piece, but there was no, like, 
federally guaranteed financial aid, no affirmative action. There were no student centers for Latinos to, you know, rally together and talk about what it's like um, being at a university like that. And so he went and had no money and just kind of figured out how to be at Cal and loved it. I mean, he loved the campus. He loved it. He was a math, he was a math major. And, you know, you, you grew up poor and you come to a giant university that's very elite and there's a lot of culture shock, but he was doing it. And, um, yeah, he, he, he put himself on a path that should have fulfilled the American dream, only to be met with some really uh, ugly racism to the point where he was left homeless um, in his sophomore year. And he tried very hard to stay in school but couldn't. Uh, went back down to East L.A., where my mom had just graduated from high school. She got pregnant. Um, before too long, they had two kids. They came back up to Berkeley. My dad tried a second time uh, to go to school, all the while working in a hamburger restaurant here in Oakland, and uh, tried a third time. And the third time he tried um, was during the free speech movement and during the uh, anti-war protests on campus, which I didn't get too much into in the piece, but the really interesting thing to me about that is that I grew up with a perspective on those those highly romanticized uh, moments in history with my parents' perspective, which was my dad was saying, I just wanted to get to class. <laughs> uh, I agreed with everything that people were fighting for, but I had two kids and I just wanted to get to class and I kept getting tear gassed and there were soldiers on the street, and I couldn't get to class. Yeah. And um, it's just a, one of those reminders that not everybody is this freewheeling 19-year-old, you know, like a Mario Savio who can stand on a car and, you know, shout in a, in a megaphone and rally people. My parents' contribution to that, interestingly enough, was that they used to babysit uh, the kids of other students so that those students could go to protests, and that was their, that was their um, <laughs> invisible. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's really it takes a village to get those things off the ground. But ultimately, he couldn't finish, yeah. and uh, ended up working at that hamburger restaurant for the rest of his, you know, his working days. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't clear, quite clear, um, mm -hmm. in your piece, but um, I know you said that he um, was pledging for this fraternity. Mm -hmm. Did they ask him to leave? Yes, because of yes. His identity? Yes, yes. They asked him to leave. He pledged, he, or he rushed, he pledged, he moved in. Uh, the fraternity house was the cheapest way to live. Mm -hmm. um, and so he figured that out, sophomore year, moved in, and was faced with a bunch of folks who just didn't know Latinos. Mm -hmm. I, honestly, like 1963, 1964, did not have any exposure to Latinos or to Mexicans and were uh, aghast that they had sort of accidentally let one in. And, uh, <laughs> Sanchez? Yeah, what? Exactly. <laughs> Well, that's what I mean. The question was, yeah. what, what kind of name is Sanchez? Which, is, which ended up being a joke in my family. Like, what kind of name is Sanchez? And we're like, are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I say Sanchez. It's, like, <laughs> it's French. Target. We always say, Dad, you should have told him it was Sanchez. Yeah. You're French. Oh gosh. Uh, but yeah, he was asked to leave, and then he was homeless, and then he just couldn't hang on anymore. I had somebody, interestingly enough, lots of positive feedback on this piece, but one person, I talked about my dad living on an apple a day uh, at that point, and this person said, you couldn't live on an apple a day. And I just thought... Does this person not know? 
the person who said that to me, right, in the comments. Never read the comments, but I did. <laughs> it was like, could you really live on an apple a day? And I just thought, you don't know people, do you? You don't. You don't. How do you yeah. not know anybody who's ever had to live on an apple a day, like, or the equivalent? Well, and the funny thing is, out of the entire article, right. that was what they picked up. That was what they picked up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a friend who studied nutritional science, also at Cal, actually, yeah. and had to do this exercise of if you um, only had a dollar, right. right, or $2 a day, how do you fulfill everything that you're supposed to get in the food pyramid? And um, I think that was a, a moment for a lot of the students because they connected that affordability to fast food. Yes. That was the only Which thing is, that you right. could really um, That's right. afford. That's right. Um, and, uh, yeah. and I think the other, the other interesting thing about my dad's story, in my opinion, is that he ended up working in fast food. He ended up eating a lot of fast food, and it ended up being a huge factor in his, you know, in his uh, illness and death. And, you know, I, I originally had a couple paragraphs in there about it, and I thought, no, like, this is... It's almost too much. It's too many layers of, of social inequity and, and sort of social issues around nutrition and what's affordable and, you know, but it's uh, it's all tied together. Yeah. I think we should choose our presidents that way with the dollar a day test and give them a year to live on a dollar a day and see who see who comes out, you know, having learned a few things and, and then then debate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that could be a good one. Right. I mean, it's, it's it's honestly all relative. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the fraternity um, thing reminds me, too, of sometimes I get very ignorant comments from people about, well, you know, why are there um, black Greek and fraternities mm-hmm. like um, uh, and sororities and, and why, why are all of the Asians hanging out? And mm-hmm. it's like, do you not understand that these organizations formed because they were not allowed, right, to be yeah. in your general <laughs> Greek system. But anyway, well, you know, okay, so I digress. The, I know, but, except, but the, the, the one last thing, I think if people are interested in that topic, yeah. one of the first books I, I recommend to folks is Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria mm-hmm. by Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, mm-hmm. who was the president of Spelman until recently. And it is a great explanation of why people of color choose to, uh, as, as some folks like to say, self-segregate or, you know, socialize in groups that are safe, that are the in-group. And it's a great examination of how that is a mode of survival. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's a paragraph um, in your piece that I would love for you to read, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so we have it here in front of, in front of us. So whenever you're ready. Uh, I think this is in the middle of the... sort of in the middle of the piece. Um, Those of us working on diversity in tech know that we've been losing talent like Ray's since before tech was considered a viable industry. Even worse, we continue to lose it today in countless stories just like his. Quote, diversity in tech is only a new concept to those who who have remained willfully ignorant of the systemic inequities blocking black and brown people from full participation. For generations, we've been robbed of their intellect and creativity. Our industry cannot afford this decades-long leak of black and brown brilliance. So tell me more about this paragraph and kind of what you were thinking um, when you were writing this about losing, like losing talent and not being able to afford to be able to do that. Well, there are a couple of things. One is that I'm realizing as I'm getting older, I'm 43 now, I've been telling more and more stories about, (laughs) I'm the old-timey person who says, well, it used to be like this. 
And I, and I discovered recently that there are some folks working on this part of the field who think that it just started yesterday, you know, or just started the day that Google released its, its numbers or, you know, whatever, um, and that it's a recent conversation and that instead it's actually a conversation that every sector should be having, but certainly in the STEM fields and definitely right here in tech, where we say, no, 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 people have lived and died without us ever knowing that they wanted to be in technology, that we never got to... We never got to reap the benefits of what they were going to think about and create and teach and write about. And I love that your podcast is called Legacy because this isn't just about us living today. It's about our parents and grandparents who ended up having to do jobs that completely uh, left untapped their, their brain power, which we need in order to solve some of society's biggest problems. Mm-hmm. The people... But it, we, it's a well-known fact in, in technology that entrepreneurs try and solve a problem that they've faced, right? That's how we got, let's be honest, that's how we got Facebook. Facebook came about because some guys were trying to get some dates. Mm-hmm. Like, that's how it started. Actually, I think it was trying to rate Right, right, dates, trying to right? rate, right, exactly, <laughs> trying to rate dates, right, in their own college. And it became something much bigger than that once a diverse set of people got their hands on it. But if we had folks who had lived on an apple a day in 1963, building the technology we were living with today, I fully believe that we would have some a different set of innovations that are as interesting, as potentially more impactful than what we're actually living with today. When I look at that list of people who were in my dad's class, and I list some of them in this piece, I think those were the people he was you know, in a cafeteria with or in a class with or sharing a computer with. And their paths were just so different, but for the grace of God or, you know, (laughs) systemic inequities and and flat-out old-fashioned racism, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so it's, uh, we've just lost so much over those generations. And um, we're just, we're losing it every day, you know, every day. There are untold numbers of young people who say, never mind, uh, computer science is too hard. And we just don't know their, we just don't know their stories. Yeah. This is one. There yeah. are millions. Yeah, and I think about those examples all the time. Like, when I think about how Uber got started, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of people forget that it started out as your personal limo driver. Right. right. It was solving a very specific problem That's for right. a very specific pool of people. Um, Instacart and all of these food delivery services, right, and tying it back to an apple a day, how are these um, really kind of cool, amazing companies serving the people who need to be living, you know, um, on a dollar a day? Um, I don't even know. I mean, do places like Instacart take food stamps? You know, know? yeah, we started (laughs) looking into this uh, and started to, on the social impact team at GitHub, started to list the number of on-demand services that did take public assistance. And so I would, we will blog about those shortly, but Sweet. that's a really important thing, I think, as we're, we're working on a project with um, public housing authorities all around the country. And what we want to know is how many shared services, right, how many Postmates or Ubers or Lyfts actually access the users that we're going to be working with yeah, now. Yeah. Or that, yeah, we should be right. um, reaching. right. Uh, and, and this kind of, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this for a long time, and I, I think this is a good segue, which is just this, this concept of diversity. I feel like, mm. I don't know about you, but I feel like <laughs> at every event, 
we always get that one person who's like, wait, but but what is diversity anyway? <laughs> you know, and um, and I'm curious to hear your your thoughts about it. Like, if this is you know the inaugural podcast, yes. right? And it is about diversity in tech. Um, you know, here is where I'm asking you to put your professor Nicole Sanchez hat on. Like, give us the framework to think about diversity. Sure. Well, I've had people, I'm sure you have also, who've said to me, I don't agree with diversity. And I go, it's like saying you don't like the composition of the air you're breathing. Oh, yeah. I'd like for there to be a little more oxygen and a little less. It, it just is. Diversity is. Uh, so you don't get to agree or disagree with it. But what I've been doing uh, recently, and I found this to be, I think, pretty effective, is we've got to have a working definition of it. So what I use these days is something to the effect of we're talking about non-cognitive demographic uh, characteristics that are underrepresented in tech and overly predictive of career and educational success. Mm. So we're talking about the hard things. We really are talking about race and gender expression and socioeconomic background and all the things none of us asked to come into the world with and don't have a ton of control over. But you can predict at birth, based on epidemiological data, how well someone's going to do, how much money they're going to earn over the course of a lifetime, how long they'll live, what they'll likely die of. And so much of it is tied to race and gender. And the whether or not we like it. Whether right? we like it or not, whether we want to actually admit it or not. Yeah. And so we have to, I think, be clear that when we're talking about diversity, one of the biggest cop-outs that I witness, and I'm sure you do too, is, well, we have diversity of thought. And I just want to say, yeah, no kidding. Anytime you put two people in a room together, you've got diversity of thought. Lisa and I don't think the same <laughs> about, about everything. Actually. No, well, right, exactly. <laughs> we don't. We don't. Maybe we do. I don't know. We haven't really pressed on what that might be. But it is a cop out. It is a cop out. And race, whether we, again, whether we like it or not, race and gender and uh, geographic background and primary language and all those things inform the way that we look at the world because the world has treated us in specific ways based on looking at us. They look at you and they see an Asian woman. They look at me and they probably can guess I'm Mexican. They can guess that I'm Latina, right? And the world interacts with us that way for good and not. My diversity of thought based on those characteristics is much further away from uh, straight white mans, for example, than a uh, a collection of people who come from a similar neighborhood, right, or all went to the same university. Or, you know, the list goes on and on about how tech finds its talent. And if you really want to get the spectrum of human experience, you have to say that diversity means race and gender expression and socioeconomic background and all of these things that we don't like talking about. Because if you just cop out and you say, well, we have diversity of thought, then it doesn't matter. You can hire all your friends. And that's what we've seen the tech sector do for a generation. Yeah. And I think um, one thing to to note, um, which I have found very interesting, is that when you ask anybody who I think is a person of color um, about diversity, it is immediately understood as, um, you know, uh, my race or uh, my gender, mm-hmm. uh, basically some of these physical markers. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it's somebody who is Caucasian, typically mm-hmm. the answer is, well, diversity of thought. And I think we really need to do more um, to close that gap. And and the way that I, I think about it is really, it's less about diversity. You know, we're all 
snowflakes. We're all individuals. We're all <laughs> special. <laughs> Everyone is special. Um, but like you said, I think it really comes down to the question of access and parity. Um, and uh, yeah, those are, are difficult, I think, for, for some people to admit and um, to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I think that we've all... If you're listening to this podcast and you've been part of tech at all, you've heard the word meritocracy batted about. And I think Silicon Valley and and the United States overall would love to think that the best and the brightest naturally rise to the top. And if you believe that and you believe that Congress is full of the best and the brightest and there are no mistakes made, then what you're saying is there couldn't possibly be people who aren't of those demographics that are overrepresented in Congress who are the best and the brightest. And when you really press somebody on that, like, do you really think we should only have this many black women in Congress? Like, we didn't find it. There weren't any smart, any capable, any driven black women who could have represented your district. Well, I'm represented by Barbara Lee, so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but when you really press people on it, they say, well, no, 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 no. There are a whole bunch of other factors. And you say, okay, name the factors, Right. And uh, and then you start to get into systemic uh, inaccessibility of the avenues that would lead to Congress or that would lead to a career in tech or that would lead to a career in academia um, or would lead to a long and prosperous life. There are systemic barriers, human made mess ups. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, on that note. Yeah. On messing up. (laughs) On messing up. (laughs) A lot of good stuff for us to think about. Um, closing off then, what is the one thing that you've changed your mind about recently? Not even necessarily having to do with tech? Nope. It does not have anything to do with tech. All right. Well. It could be, you know, you've decided that Drake <laughs> is actually awesome. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Did I not like him before? And I oh, like no, him no, I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm I mean, just I'm just, that's just an example that I'm using. <laughs> I love funny. Drake. My favorite Canadian hip-hop star. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, here's one, and it's funny because I think it, it ties back to my dad. My dad raised me and my three sisters to be, like, super sports fans. We are... We are competitive. Oh, I've, no, I've, I've, I've observed this. <laughs> and football is a huge sport for us, even though none of us got to play. Well, one of my sisters played flag football in, in middle school, uh, but none of us got to play. But we are huge, huge, huge football fans, specifically the Oakland Raiders. I have Raiders gear. Like, you open my, my drawers in my, <laughs> my bureau, and it's like, there's the silver and black drawer. And I recently had to just come to terms with the data around... Uh, concussions and what it's doing and how it's shortening people's lives and really leading to some horrendous things like increased domestic violence and substance abuse and I can't treat it like it's entertainment anymore and actually you know it's one of those things where even when you look at the data of something like diversity in tech if you have to hold something dearly close to you and you know near and dear to your heart it's hard to give that up and football as one of my identities giving that up is harder than I would like to admit, but I'm, I'm done with football and I won't be watching this next season. This was my last season. Wow. I know. Can you believe that? Yeah. That's big. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, this is for offline discussion, but I've come to that with the Cosby show. (sighs) 
So anyway, uh, on that note, on that note, was way too juicy. <laughs> just dropping the mic here. Uh, you are listening to the Legacy Code podcast. So happy to have you here. Thank you, Lisa. And thank you for this amazing discussion, as always. And uh, listeners, uh, subscribe. Send us uh, an email. You can find us on Twitter at the Legacy Code. And what's your Twitter handle? NM Sanchez. Yeah. So shoot us some thoughts, and uh, we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.